Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. In ways large and small, the genes we inherit from our forebears shape our lives, and in too many cases can sometimes cut young lives short, well before their time. Now, a cutting-edge therapy is confronting one terrible genetic legacy head-on and achieving some success, as Martha Teichner will report in our cover story. Calliope Joy Carr, age six, <laughs> is slowly dying of a rare genetic disorder. Giovanni Price, also six, has the same disease. But look, he could be any normal first grader. He doesn't know the miracle that he is, and he doesn't know he's not supposed to be running and jumping and playing. That miracle and the future of medicine ahead this Sunday morning. Phil Collins is a music superstar whose glow has dimmed somewhat in recent years. This morning, he talks candidly with our Jim Axelrod for the record. The song's the same, but the singer, well, that's a different story. Pop icon Phil Collins is back in the spotlight and bearing his soul. I've got five kids, you know, and um, until recently I haven't lived with any of them. And that, you know, that's a personal thing that I have to deal with. A very different side of the superstar yeah, this is, later I mean, when you on Sunday morning. Now you see him, soon you won't. Connor Knighton is on the trail of the shrinking glaciers at Glacier National Park. The tripod is carefully positioned. The framing has to be just right. When Dan Fagri is replicating old pictures of Glacier National Park, he makes sure everything is exactly the same to show just how much has changed. I consider myself a scientific paparazzi for the glaciers. Scientists have focused on these Montana mountains as a poster child for climate change. What happens when Glacier National Park loses all of its glaciers? Ahead on Sunday morning. When it comes to fine print, the lawyer-turned-author John Grisham has few peers. His enthusiasm for his craft still shines brightly, as Anthony Mason found out during a recent visit. You can still get excited to see the, sure. the hardcover arrive. Sure. Every time. These came He's sold nearly 300 million books, but John Grisham's legal thrillers don't always get critical respect. And how do you feel about that? Well, in the early days, it's pretty irritating. Um, <laughs> makes you hate critics. This is your first dual number one? I think so. He's been rewarded in other ways, with 28 consecutive number one bestsellers. John Grisham, later on Sunday morning. Lee Cowan takes us to some magic and colorful mountains in the desert. Mo Rocca has questions for New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. Faith Saley puts in a good word for swearing and more. Next, how HIV helped give him a new lease on life. And later... They look almost like giant, nice people, gentle people. In living color.
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The genetic legacy each of us inherits is a powerful force. In a few extreme cases, it can even be deadly. Still, thanks to science, genetics need not always be destiny, as Martha Teichner shows us in our cover story. Amy and Brad Price's home in Omaha, Nebraska, is crazy with all the kids around. There are seven of them, ages 2 to 11. But if you look closely, you'll see small memorials to one more, Liviana, who died in 2013 at the age of five and a half, of a rare nightmare disease called late infantile metachromatic leukodystrophy, MLD, that destroys brain cells and is caused by a single faulty gene. She was happy all the time. She loved pretty dresses. Um, Tutu. Yeah, she she always had on tutus. She was talkative, addicted to Caillou, the animated TV series, a lively little girl, till she was two. Her knees were going a little knock-kneed, and she had been just randomly falling down. Her doctor said nothing to worry about, but she quickly got worse. I was in the kitchen doing something, and I heard her crying. I turned and I said, Liviana, what's wrong? And she said, Mommy, my legs don't work. Liviana was diagnosed in the fall of 2010. And she's sitting on the bed in her tutu and her colorful sweater, and they're telling me she's going to die. These are faces of MLD. Many children with the disorder are dead by the age of six, and it runs in families. If it hadn't been for Liviana, Amy and Brad Price would never have known to have their other children tested. They learned that their infant son, Giovanni, had inherited the faulty gene, too. And I get a call from the doctor's office. Did you just know? I knew. And I was thinking, I really have just been told two of my kids now are going to die. Except that's not what happened. Doing research online, Amy Price discovered the existence of a medical trial in Milan, Italy, of an extraordinary gene therapy treatment for MLD that would save Giovanni's life, and later, when his sister Cecilia was born with MLD, hers too. The treatment works only on children who, like them, have not yet started showing symptoms. The Price family scraped together the money to go to Milan. Dr. Alessandra Biffy oversaw the trial. The patients go to the surgery room for collection of the stem cells on Monday and receive their cells back on Friday evening. A patient's stem cells contain the faulty gene, which the doctors have learned how to fix. Amazing, right? But then they need a vehicle to insert the good gene into the stem cells before those are put back into the patient's body. Here's what's really amazing. That vehicle is the HIV virus, re-engineered so the children can't get AIDS. Why the HIV virus? Is it particularly efficient at getting around the body? Yeah, it's very efficient in entering our cells, and that's why we use it. How well did the children do? It will take years to know for sure. 
but so far so good. At least 70 to 80 percent of them had an outstanding benefit coming from the treatment. Some of the children were going to school and having a normal life. Look at Giovanni Price, six now, in first grade. Look at his sister Cecilia, Chechi for short. Twice a year, they have to go back to Milan to be tested and monitored. Tell me about Dr. Biffy. Oh, gosh. Um... <laughs> I call her my angel. Yeah. My angel. She took us in as, a, like, family. So why Italy, not the United States? Gene therapy has a checkered history. In the 90s, hyped as the next big thing, Research here withered after serious setbacks, including a death during clinical trials. So you see a drawing of the typical virus. But more than 15 years later, it's back. One sign, Dr. Biffy is now head of the gene therapy program at Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorders Center. Do you believe that gene therapy is finally coming into its own? I think yes, absolutely. The MLD trial, Biffy thinks, demonstrates what's possible, offering promise to the 30 million Americans who suffer from some 7,000 rare diseases. Trials for the experimental treatment Chechi and Giovanni Price received in Milan have not begun in the United States. They are two of only 24 children in the world with MLD to receive it. You're doing pretty good out there, buddy. Compare Giovanni. Okay, Cal, we're going to get your diaper on. Start your spa treatment. To Calliope Joy Carr, also six, from Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. She can turn her head a little. She can still smile and laugh. <laughs> but that's about all. I came to sun too. She was diagnosed at two. The itsy bitsy spider climbed up the spout For her parents, college professors Patrick Carr and Maria Kafalis, coming to terms with the disease was wrenching. So it's decline in slow motion, and that's difficult. I remember the social worker said, it's good to try to cry in the shower to save it from your family and your children. Oh. Oh. After more than a year of rage and grief, Maria decided that she had to find some way of helping MLD children. It was too late for Cal, but she was desperate to give her daughter's life meaning. We're not wealthy people. We didn't know very influential people who could write a big check for a million dollars. And so we said, well, we'll start selling cupcakes. The Calliope Joy Foundation was formed in 2013. <laughs> They're so good. It's been slow going, but the money added up. And when Maria learned about the Italian trial and the fact that Amy Price had to keep going back to Milan with Giovanni and Chechi, it was clear she would use the money to help families get to Italy. She sent me a picture of Giovanni playing in his front yard. He's three months younger than Cal, so he should have been as sick as Cal. He should be on a feeding tube. He should be paralyzed. And I thought, 
I got to be a part of this. I, 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 I need to help this happen again and again and again. Maria Kafalis has turned cupcakes into weapons of war, her war against MLD. Selling the cupcakes seems kind of silly, but I mean, I don't know what else to do. We'll get it. We'll get it. She's raised more than $250,000 and helped where she could. But she's hit a wall. So far, not a single gene replacement therapy has been approved by the FDA. The trial in Italy is closed to new patients. It could be years before any children with MLD will be allowed to receive the treatment in the United States. Now it's just impatience. Now it's like... When do we get this here? What will it take? Tell me what you need me to do. Until then, she continues to fight her battles. Yay! Charles Cupcakes! One cupcake at a time. The Price children proof to her the war can be won. You keep using the word miracle. In what way is all of this a miracle? That our son is still with us. That's the miracle. And Cecilia as well. Ahead, the latest wrinkle. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, October 23rd, 1814, 202 years ago today. The day London doctor Joseph Carpu performed what is widely regarded as the Western world's first modern plastic surgery operation. Pioneered in ancient Egypt, plastic surgery was long practiced in India, where Dr. Karpu observed it firsthand. His subsequent successful operations and his writings about them caught the attention of the medical world. Fast forward to today, when plastic surgery figures prominently in tabloid speculation about any number of Hollywood stars. Plastic surgery has even played a starring role on TV in shows such as Nip Tuck. I need a bigger set of torpedoes to give myself a competitive edge. You want breast implants. Popular as plastic surgery is here in the United States, it's even more popular in beachbody-minded Brazil, as CBS News discovered during a visit back in 2005. Tall, tan, young, and lovely as she is, even the girl from Ipanema is getting a little extra help these days. Right after actually leaving the clinic, mm -hmm. I felt different already. Something like, okay, people are looking now. I like it. By the way, when it comes to plastic surgery, all is not vanity. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, the number of Americans who had cosmetic surgery last year was about 1.7 million. But more than three times as many, nearly 6 million people, had reconstructive surgery for medical reasons. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A range of mountains appeared like magic in America's western desert a few months back. Their peaks have attracted any number of visitors, including our own Lee Cowan. I-15 in Nevada, just outside Las Vegas. It's arguably one of the more bland stretches of pavement on the planet. But out in all that khaki is something that has motorists rubbing their eyes in disbelief. 
This is no mirage. It's very real, very big, and very bright. It does sort of call to you from the road in a way that nothing else in the middle of the desert necessarily yeah. does. Yeah. It really gets you excited, work done. Made of painted limestone, these technicolor towers appear both ancient and modern, both native and foreign. And that is precisely why it is art, says David Walker of the Nevada Museum of Art. But I think we're seeing a movement over the last few years where artists would like to engage a larger public and would like to have scale. They look almost like people, just giant, nice people, gentle people. It's the vision of Ugo Rondinoni, a Swiss artist living in Harlem, who calls his desert friends the Seven Magic Mountains. So what do you want people to take away from this? It's not something intellectual, it's just something to experience. I always say it, you don't have to understand an artwork, you have to feel it. And people have been making connections with it ever since Ugo unveiled it this past May. It's so colorful, it's huge, and it's not something you'd expect to see out here in the desert, so it's, it's really surprising. Droves of the curious have been braving the desert heat, not to mention warnings of venomous snakes, to come investigate the oddity for themselves. One, two, three, go. It's a social media magnet. Oh, cool, huh? A backdrop for all manner of things, both real and a little surreal. Like the costumed aliens who showed up when we were there. Still, the work is not for everyone. There are some people who say that it's marred the desert, that they don't, they're not big fans of it. What do you say to those people? I say to those people, many people who have never experienced the landscape, the Nevada desert. For the first time, when they came with their children, they see the beauty of this landscape. He took the boulders from the landscape itself. Each he handpicked from a nearby quarry, some weighing more than 50,000 pounds apiece. We moved them stone by stone, one by one. The stones were shaved flush with the help of a huge diamond saw and holes were drilled for an internal skeleton that would hold the boulders in place. And then came layer after layer of that bright day glow paint. It's the contrast that you wanted, right? Between the artificial and the natural. Exactly. I wanted to use natural material, but make it artificial. Well, it's worth coming out here for. Thank you. It's bigger than I thought. It is? It is. Uh... Its size is historic. It's the largest land art project out here in more than 40 years. Michael Heiser made Rift, a zigzag trench dug in a dry lake bed here in Nevada back in 1968. Two years later, the spiral jetty, jutting out into Utah's Great Salt Lake, was envisioned by Robert Smithson. But since then, nothing has been created on that kind of scale. The Nevada Museum of Art wanted to reprise that tradition, especially right here where Ugo's art would get the maximum number of eyeballs from people going to and from Las Vegas. It's just a very uh, small percentage of people go to museum or gallery. So I love the idea of public art and having in the open for everyone to see it. It's not forever, however. In two years, Seven Magic Mountains is scheduled to be dismantled. The sentinels that once beckoned the curious from the freeway 
will remain only in the mind's eye. You financed one of your films. Let's don't talk about that one. <laughs> Still to come, author John Grisham holds court with Anthony Mason. And later, singer Phil Collins, back from death's door. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. 1993's The Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington was a hit film based on just one of the highly successful novels by John Grisham. He's written enough fine print to fill a large bookcase, not to mention furnish a whole office, as Anthony Mason discovered. These two desks were in the, these, uh, were in the movie The Firm, John Grisham's office looks a bit like a movie set, decorated with props from the films made from his legal thrillers. And the door? That was uh, Susan Sarandon's uh, law office in The Client. When's your boss coming back? Why, may I ask? The Client is the story of a lawyer. I'm Reggie Love. Played by Susan Sarandon in the 1994 film, she represents a boy who may know where the body of a murdered U.S. senator is buried. No, we gotta make our deal before we tell him where the body is, and then just keep our fingers crossed. So first we gotta be sure the body's even there, right? Suspense like this has helped Grisham sell nearly 300 million books. You can still get excited to see the, sure. the hardcover arrive? Sure. Every time. These came in two days ago. The Whistler, the tale of a corrupt judge and an Indian casino, is the latest thriller for the author who's had 28 consecutive number one New York Times fiction bestsellers, going back to the Pelican Brief in 1992. Here's the cool stuff, the foreign editions. How many countries are you published in? We're up to something like 48 or 49 languages. Mm -hmm. It's been quite a journey for Johnny Grisham Jr., as he was called at South Haven High in Mississippi. The son of a cotton farmer, Grisham would earn his law degree from Ole Miss. This is your first business card? Yes, back when I was uh, a, a hungry lawyer. My little office in South Haven, Mississippi on State Line Road. Your clients were mostly what? Anybody could pay a fee. It was, it was always, and I had a hard time saying no to people in trouble. I really had a hard time doing that, so I took a lot of cases I shouldn't have taken just because folks needed help. And uh, when you do that as a young lawyer, it's, it's hard to make a buck. To make an extra buck, Grisham started writing. Why did you think you could do it? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know if I could do it. I knew I, I, knew I was going to try. Uh -huh. I used to walk in a bookstore like this and see all the, these books on the walls, and I would say, who wants to hear from me? You know, what do I have to add to all this? Where did that... Where did that bug come from? Because you hadn't really been writing before. I had never written anything, and I had never uh, studied writing. It came, <laughs> my motives were pure. Uh, I had a great story. I had a great story. It was as simple as the story. As simple as the story. It was a courtroom drama that I sort of fictionalized, and that became a time to kill. It would take him three years, during which time he was also serving in the Mississippi State Legislature. Were you a good legislator? No, it was terrible. 
um, I had the highest absentee rate of any freshman legislator. I got sick of the job. I wrote a lot of A Time to Kill at the state capitol in Jackson, Mississippi, hiding in little committee rooms, killing time, waiting for legislation to come to the floor. It's not exactly a blockbuster when it comes out. Oh, it was a total flop. Uh, they printed 5,000 hardback copies. I bought 1,000. We, <laughs> we couldn't give them away. <laughs> uh, I sold them out of the trunk of my car for several months at libraries just trying to unload the books so I could pay the invoice. What made you go back and write another one? Well, I had a great idea, or an idea that I liked a lot. Keep each other's secrets. I like that. The Firm, the story of a young lawyer who uncovers the dark side of his firm when two associates are murdered, went on to sell seven million copies. Just had a little chat with the FBI. Even before the Tom Cruise film was released in 1993, Grisham quit politics and the law to write full-time. It changed my life. Everything was different after that. Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense you've ever missed practicing law? No, I never have. Uh, and again, I've been out of it now for 25 years. Uh, but, but you go back to it in your books all the time. That's the best way to practice law, <laughs> writing about it and not having to be in the courtroom. Nine of Grisham's novels have been made into movies, most of them very successful. Stephen King told me 20 years ago, he said, you know, get all your money up front, kiss it goodbye, and expect it to be something different. If you don't like that, don't sell it. Right. You, know? you financed one of your films. Let's don't talk about that one. <laughs> it almost bankrupted me. It did. No, well, it, it cost a lot of money. Um, it was uh, this brilliant idea I had for a Little League baseball movie, uh -huh. and it was a total flop. We're cheating, okay? We knew what we were doing when the season started. Can't stop now. His baseball movie, Mickey, may have struck out, but Grisham built a real-life field of dreams. We started uh, construction in 1995, mm -hmm. opened in 96 uh, with a couple hundred kids. After moving his family to Virginia from Mississippi, he couldn't find a place for his son and daughter to play ball. And that's why I got mad, and here we are. <laughs> in a cow pasture 20 miles from Charlottesville, he built six ball fields, started an independent league with 20 teams, paid the umpires, and even painted the lines at times. Are you still the commissioner? I am the commissioner. Owner, I'd love to give it to somebody. Uh, still write checks to support it. It's, uh, it does not cover the red ink, but uh, it's, um, it, I, I didn't build it to make a profit, I promise you that. For 20 years now, hundreds of little leaguers have taken the field every spring. Must have been pretty proud of that. Still proud of it. Yeah. Still proud of it. You'll find his son's name on a plaque here at Cove Creek Park, but not the author's. Grisham keeps a low profile in his adopted state. What, what made you come here? Well, we didn't know anybody. That was the attraction. Really? <laughs> we, were try we were looking for a place to hide. The 61-year-old writer isn't kidding about hiding. Our interview stopped suddenly when a phone rang in a back room. The secretary used to answer it. She's gone. And she's not being replaced. John Grisham still likes to see his name on a dust jacket 
but nowhere else. The voicemail uh, was full the first month after she left, and I have not answered the phone since. <laughs> 30, <laughs> 32 months ago. I'm at a point in life where peop the people who matter can find me, and nobody else can. I mean, the, 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 my friends and family, the ones who need me, like email, all that kind of stuff, cell phone, and nobody else can find me, so that's kind of nice. And you like that? Oh, I love it, yes. Uh, I'm not going to live any other way. <laughs> Next, every time I say sugar and fudge, little neurons in my brain probably die. You'll swear by Faith Saley. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Could bad language possibly be a good thing? Our contributor, Faith Saley, swears it's true. And yes, Parental guidance for what she's about to say is advised. Do you usually think you're the smartest mother in the room? You may be right, based on a recent study. Researchers found that people who curse a lot are more intelligent. Contrary to the negative stereotype that folks who swear have poor vocabularies, a fluency in taboo language correlates with overall verbal fluency. The more words you know, the more you know, and the more colorfully you can express yourself with nuance, metaphor, and emotion. And I'm happy to note that men and women in this experiment swore in equal measure, so let's hear it for the ladies. There is something to all this. I definitely feel dumber now that I'm the mother of a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I thought it was sleep deprivation, but now I understand it's because those adorable little have been sabotaging my IQ. I'm squandering invaluable gray matter by censoring myself. Every time I say sugar and fudge, little neurons in my brain probably die. My husband is a graduate of two Ivy League universities with a degree in classics, and he sounds like a David Mamet character when I hear him on a business call. You, John. You know your business, I know mine. Your business being an you. Perhaps I should not be annoyed at my mother-in-law when she uses the F word in front of our children. Now I see that grandma, a PhD, is merely trying to enrich their lexicon so they can go to fine schools. Also, cursing makes you feel better. In another study, participants were asked to plunge their hands into ice water for as long as they could bear it. When they were encouraged to swear up a storm, they were able to keep their hands underwater 73% longer. Even Shakespeare acknowledges the power of the profane when he has Caliban in The Tempest declare, you taught me language and my profit on't is I know how to curse. Now, if you'll please excuse me, I have to wash my mouth out with soap. Gah, it's gonna taste like dog we're going to go live with Trump tweets. Ahead, Family Matters with columnist Maureen Dowd. They're my own little basket of deplorables. Maureen Dowd of the New York Times has plenty to say about Clinton versus Trump. And not surprisingly, she's found she can't please everyone. As she reveals to Mo Rocca in a round of questions and answers. Do you read the comments? Never. And not looking at reader feedback is probably a wise decision if you're New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. I'm always making one side or the other angry. I'm really shy and kind of introverted. But when I write, it has to be a tougher part of myself because that's my job. And her job this presidential campaign has been hitting both sides hard. 
She's excoriated Hillary Clinton for her long pattern of ethical slipping and sliding. As for Donald Trump and his performance in last Wednesday's debate. My Social Security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Such a Security nasty Trust woman. Fund. Yeah, the fact that she was able to goad him into calling her a nasty woman when she was discussing the intricacies of Social Security and taxes was a triumph of psychological warfare. Dowd's new book, The Year of Voting Dangerously, includes many of her columns and none of those comments. Do you not read the comments because you think they'd hurt your feelings? Oh, they would hurt my feelings. When I was little, I was so overly sensitive. And I actually thought that if someone said something mean to you, it would get in your bloodstream and it would be like leukemia and you would die. She may not read her comments, but Peggy Dowd does. Always at the ready to stick up for her little sister. No one better say anything to me about Maureen. I read all of her comments. And? And I get very angry sometimes. It's like being in a Godfather movie. You take one of theirs, they take one of yours, you go to the mattresses. This is Dowd's ninth presidential campaign. But this time around, she says, the national mood is uniquely terrible. There have been a lot of stories that couples are breaking up all over the country. A friend of mine, his wife said to him, they've been married for over 20 years, she said, seriously, if you vote for Trump, I will divorce you. Right. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. People feel very intensely that if Donald Trump gets elected, we're going to have the zombie apocalypse. And then my siblings feel just as strongly that if Hillary gets in, there will be the abyss. So he's sort of the, is this right, the law and order sibling? That's right. Maureen's brother, Kevin, is a rock-ribbed Republican who occasionally takes over his sister's column to hurl slabs of red meat at her defenseless readers. I particularly like the comments that come in afterwards. So you read the comments. Oh, I keep a scrapbook of them. Yes, he's voting for Donald Trump. Trump was not my first, second, or third choice, but Trump represents change. And so does Maureen's sister, Peggy. She embodies change. We were Goldwater girls. She cast her first vote for conservative Barry Goldwater, then made her way left with Jimmy Carter, then tacked right again for Reagan and both Bushes. This election, she's leaning Trump, but... She went to Cuba for a vacation and fell in love with Che Guevara and turned communist for three days. So anything can happen. You're a pretty solid conservative, but you had this dalliance with communism. And socialism. When you were a Bernie Sanders (laughs) voter. And you voted for Obama. I did vote for Obama. Maureen Dowd grew up the youngest of five in a tight-knit Irish Catholic family in Washington, D.C. Her father was a police inspector in charge of Senate security. He got to see the members of that august body in some of their less august moments. He had the worm's eye view, so these politicians were not trying to impress him. And my brothers were pages there as well. They would see the nitty-gritty. They would see senators come in in the morning drunk, and then other senators' wives would be calling, saying, where's my husband, where's my husband, you know, because there was a lot of hanky-panky in those days. So my father tended to judge politicians on whether they seemed to be good people. 
you know, rather than the party so much, although he was a Democrat. Indeed, Dowd's column focuses less on policy and more on the person. You've heard the charge that you and your legions of imitators, by focusing so much on character and personality, have trivialized the process. I think it's just the reverse. Whenever America has had a trauma, whether it's Watergate or Vietnam or Iraq, if you look back, those decisions were made on the basis of the president's personality or personal demons. demons. Dowd met Donald Trump in the late 1980s and admitted early this campaign that covering him might mean he would send out one of his midnight mordant tweets about me, something like, she started as a three, now she's a one. I knew that he would cut me off, because I would be honest, and he tweeted that I was a neurotic dope and I was wacky and crazy. So I was very hurt because I thought he could have come up with something much more customized, spent more time on it, like Elizabeth Warren has Pocahontas, so I was very hurt. He could have done something like, with the Irish, like about a banshee or something yes, like that. A banshee. Yeah. That would have been perfect. <laughs> She's been writing about the Clintons for 25 years, winning a Pulitzer for her commentary on the Lewinsky scandal and impeachment crisis. Hillary has these two sides that are in conflict. So the dark side where she's fearful and paranoid and secretive and has a lot of scar tissue from all these battles that she's fought and from her husband fighting his battles with the women who have come forward trips up the light idealistic side that she started with at Wellesley. Her job, she says, is to give whoever's in power a hard time. Even my family doesn't understand when a Republican president is in, they don't talk to me for four or eight years because they're mad that I'm critiquing. And then when a Democrat is in, they love it. But her family is always her personal focus group. All of my fellow Times columnists have been going on these Margaret Mead road trips. We're going to find this strange, exotic creature called a Trump voter and try and understand who they are and reason with them. When all I have to do is go home, they're my own little basket of deplorables. And if this campaign is creating strife in some families, well, the Dowds are taking it in stride. I've been married for 42 years to a registered Democrat. <laughs> you ought to seek counseling if you can't sort this out. I think there was more attention in our household when W was president. I was almost a fanatic for him. If Maureen wrote any criticism of him, I just went nuts. She canceled her New York Times subscription. <laughs> I did. After he got into the White House and years later, I thought, this is ridiculous, you know. If I'm dying, he isn't going to be at my bedside. Maureen will. Next. I mean, they immediately told me I was going to need a transplant. I just said to myself, if I can help, I'm going to help. Happily ever after. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many a path to marriage begins with a decidedly simple gift, such as flowers. Definitely not the case for the wedding our Steve Hartman dropped in on. There are always a lot of people to thank on a wedding day. 
But the bride-to-be at this church outside Chicago had one person to thank over all others, a total stranger who made this possible. I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for him. A couple years ago, out of the blue, 27-year-old Heather Kruger was diagnosed with stage 4 liver disease. Doctors said she had just a few months to live. I mean, they immediately told me I was going to need a transplant. That's not enough time to really find a donor, right? No. By that time, I could really feel my body shutting down. Enter our hero. Chris Dempsey is a code enforcement officer for the village of Frankfurt, Illinois. What's going on? And he says he was in the break room one day when he overheard a guy talking about this woman who needed a liver donor. I spent four years in the Marine Corps and learned there never to run away from anything. So I just said to myself, hey, if I can help, I'm going to help. Keep in mind, he'd never met Heather, but he got tested to see if he was compatible. And when he found out he was, that's when they finally met for the first time. We had lunch together, discussed what the whole process was going to be. Did you buy at least? No, he bought. Oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he bought, but I remember. Not long after, they checked into the University of Illinois Hospital. The transplant, which involves removing about half of the donor's liver, went off without a hitch. Afterward, Chris and Heather remained close. They got so close, in fact, he was at her wedding last weekend. He had to be, really. I mean, what's a wedding? Without a groom. And so it was that a year and a half after giving her part of his liver, she gave him all her heart. You're the most incredible man I've ever known. You believe in me, and you make me feel amazing every single day. Because of you, I laugh, smile, and I dare to dream again. Acts of great kindness are done without expectation. When Chris decided to give an organ to a random stranger, he had no idea he was saving his own wife. But such is the way of goodness. The more likely you are to live for others, the more likely you are to live happily ever after. Still to come, Phil Collins, looking back, and later, before, after. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. With songs such as Take Me Home, Phil Collins has touched millions of fans over the years. Now, after touching bottom in his personal life, he's telling his very personal story to our Jim Axelrod for the record. If he doesn't look exactly like you remember him, well, it's been a while. In fact, it had been six years since Phil Collins last played in public when he kicked off this year's U.S. Open tennis tournament two months ago. He is 65 now 
walking with a cane and a little hard of hearing, not to mention the bad wrist that keeps him from playing the drums. But Phil Collins wants us all to know he is not fading away. I've been made aware the last few years that people have missed me. I was checking into a hotel in Miami and a bellman said something to me. And it really touched me. It was like, you know, when are you going to come back, man? Because we really miss you. Stay with me, my love. I hope you'll always be. But as much as he wants to look forward, the bulk of Colin's energy lately has been spent looking back. His new memoir, Not Dead Yet, is a candid chronicle of struggle with marriage, drinking, and fame. So maybe this was an attempt to gain some clarity. You had lived the life, and now maybe you wanted to understand it a little. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, when you've been married three times, and you've got five kids, you don't live with them, and you've been divorced three times, you start to wonder whether it's you, you know? Can't, can't always be someone else's fault. Born and raised in the outskirts of post-war London, his book charts his beginnings as a performer playing the artful Dodger in a West End production of Oliver. Through his first run as a rock star with Genesis, to his turn as one of the biggest pop icons of the 80s and 90s. But if you think selling 250 million records insulates you from regret, Collins's proof, one, has absolutely nothing to do with the others. I think in the 80s, I became very annoying. I know, I know a lot of people love it, but I can see that I was omnipresent and that can get up people's noses. Now Phil Collins! The high point then seems to be one of his low points now that he's had more than three decades to think about it. The summer of 1985, when he played Live Aid in London in the morning, then took the Concord to play another set in Philadelphia. I do think it added to my showing off kind of thing and the annoying guy that thinks he can act and thinks he can do and not only does he play live aid once he plays it twice he couldn't help himself once he hit it big he pushed hard with no regard for consequence Please give me one more night. he built a solo career he became a sought-after producer He even had his own big band. And I'm reading the chapter, and I'm thinking, Phil, slow down. Slow down. Did that thought ever cross your mind? Oh, uh, not really. Nothing could withstand that pace, certainly not any of his three marriages. These days, having reconciled with his third wife and living in Miami with their two teenage sons, Collins seems to be finding liberation in the honest reckoning. Take his Oscar-nominated, Grammy-winning hit, Against All Odds. He can't even play it. 
apart from writing it, I've only ever played it twice. You, just... you can't play against all odds? No. I could learn. <laughs> but I, don't, I can't play it, no. But Phil Collins has written this book to reckon with much bigger things than that. In 2006, his third marriage falling apart, living alone in a hotel while working on the Broadway version of Tarzan, Collins almost let the pain kill him. And you discover the pain relief in the minibar. Were you aware you were drinking that much? Yeah. Yeah. This man, who'd given so much pleasure to so many people, could not find any happiness himself. The workaholic became an alcoholic. How bad did it get? Oh, I was at death's door, you know. I mean, um... Hang on. Literally, death's door. Yeah, well, that's what the doctor said. I was in Lausanne intensive care in a hospital. My pancreas had sort of buggered up, and, um organs were shutting down and the doctor said to Lindsay who is, who is my assistant is Mr. Collins papers in order because we don't think he might not make it you know ask Phil Collins an honest question you, right? and you get an honest answer you good you clean you're, you're... no you know I mean I was clean for three years and now I feel like I can have a glass of wine um, these days Collins gets his real kicks in San Antonio, Texas, of all places, remembering the Alamo. The show apparently hooked kids on both sides of the Atlantic because Phil Collins grew up to become the largest private collector of Alamo artifacts. His collection was valued at more than $10 million when he donated it to the state of Texas. You really get a sense of how heavy. If this all seems like a bit of a head-scratcher, it makes perfect sense when you consider that for Collins, the story of the Alamo, like his own, is far more complicated than you might think. And it wasn't bad Mexicans and good Texans. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, there was bravery on both sides of the wall. Seems to me like you're really into setting the record straight. Yeah, I think it needs to be done. And me, I'm getting stronger by the minute. Setting the record straight is what Phil Collins needs to do wherever he is these days. The acoustics okay in a room like this? Yeah. Like in the studio he's set up at home in Miami, where he contemplates his comeback. If I had to bet one side or the other that Phil Collins is going to actually make music again in here that we all hear, or should I take the other side of that? Oh, I think I would owe it to you to say I'd, uh, I, I think it's possible, yeah. When Maybe it will be more solo work. Maybe he'll team up with his son, Nick, who backed him up on drums at the U.S. Open. Or perhaps another reunion with Genesis. Whatever form it takes, you're not done yet. No, I'm not done yet. Sounds like a good name for a Sounds book. Sounds like a good name for a book. Coming up... Alan Turing makes history again. 
It happened this past week, the righting of a long-standing wrong in Britain. The government announced it was granting posthumous pardons to roughly 50,000 men convicted of homosexual offenses in years past. Another 15,000 men who are still living will be able to apply for pardons on an individual basis. The policy shift is informally referred to as Turing's Law, after Alan Turing, the math genius who helped break the Germans' Enigma Code during World War II, only to apparently commit suicide in 1954 after a conviction. I have something uh, uh, to tell you. Turing's story was the basis of the recent film, The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm a homosexual. Turing was granted a posthumous pardon in 2013. Britain largely decriminalized consensual homosexuality in 1967 and further eased the law in 2001. Still, some questions remain. It's not immediately clear whether a pardon will be granted to the writer Oscar Wilde, convicted in 1895. Nor is it clear that every man eligible for a pardon will seek one. As 93-year-old George Montague put it last week, to accept a pardon means to accept that you were guilty. I was not guilty of anything. Coming up on the trail at Glacier National Park. Glacier National Park in Montana has a name to live up to, but it's a name that seems to be living on borrowed time, as Connor Knighton discovered on the trail. Like most photographers, Dan Fagri is obsessed with getting the perfect shot. We'll have hiked around 12 miles together, up steep mountain passes, across icy streams, all to photograph a small slice of Montana's Glacier National Park. Visitors take snapshots of the views, but when Fagri looks through his lens, he sees something different. He's trying to take a picture of what isn't there, the tons and tons of ice that have disappeared. Oh my gosh, none of that's there. None of that's there, so look. Fagri is an ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. So in 1938 then, the glacier filled this entire basin. Using material from the park's archives, the USGS has been re-photographing old black and white images. Re-photography is really interesting. It's a little bit of a detective story. You're trying to find the exact spot that a photographer stood decades before and shoot the exact same picture and then compare the changes between those two time spans. In a short amount of time, the change has been dramatic. So. 50 years ago, what would we have been looking at? Well, 50 years ago, we would have been under ice right now. Oh, really? Right here? Uh, right here. We would have been under a lot of ice. The sign says Glacier National Park. But some models have suggested that these Montana mountains will lose most, if not all, of their glaciers by 2030. Soon, there won't be any ice left to photograph. You know, like a lot of people, I really like the glaciers in Glacier Park. And um, while I'll be sad to see them go personally, I think my role as a scientist is to make sure that everybody understands the pace at which they're disappearing and the reasons for that so that, again, better decisions could be made societally. The reason, scientists explain, is climate change. The planet is heating up. 
Park Service Director John Jarvis has said that climate change is fundamentally the greatest threat to the integrity of our national parks that we've ever experienced. Visiting the parks this year, I've experienced it firsthand. At Kenai Fjords in Alaska, the massive glaciers will survive longer than those in Montana, but they're still shrinking. Walking into the park, there are signs where there was once ice. 1899, 1926, 1961, all the way up to 2005. Markers of where this glacier used to be. All right, let me give you a little shot of what we're looking at. Last year, President Obama paid a visit to Kenai Fjords to talk about climate change. Uh, that is melting glaciers and blocks of ice that are raising sea levels. In 2016, this glacier has already retreated over 250 feet. That's a new record. Well, the glaciers have been receding. And the surprising thing, the thing that lets us know that this is an indication of climate change is the rate of retreat has increased drastically. At the park, Ranger Fiona North also uses photos to illustrate the before and after. So this one, this is 1992. Oh, wow, so it used to come down, it covered this whole green area. From Alaska to Montana, Photos that were originally taken to publicize these natural wonders are now being used to publicize how they're disappearing. It packs a punch that a chart or a graph just can't deliver. I think people are extremely visual. And you know, the old saying about when painting or photo being worth a thousand words, we get a lot of information visually and we tend to trust that even more than what we hear. With these photos, the message is clear. The pace of change is anything but glacial. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.